0: The subject of this address is twofold refugees and war. The current refugee and migrant crisis is of such major proportions that consideration of it cannot be avoided. It is a deeply complex and emotive issue and one in which there is much potential for being misunderstood if one does not follow a certain line. Why is there a refugee crisis? It is because of war. So we shall also be considering the issue of war and the providence of God. A matter which is also at the forefront of our minds in this year of 2015 with the 70th anniversary of VE Day and the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Britain. First of all, we need to consider biblically the issue of nationhood itself because large scale migration affects the very concept. Of nationhood. In Deuteronomy 32 and verse 8, Moses tells us that just as the Lord once separated out the nation of Israel from the rest of mankind, so he also ordained the independent existence of all the other nations. We read, The Most High divided to the nations their inheritance. He set the bounds of the people. So here is God's own stamp upon the legitimacy of nationhood and upon the legitimacy of controlled national borders. In Numbers 20 and 21 we read of the Israelites travelling from the wilderness to the promised land. They needed to pass through the territory belonging to the Edomites and the Amorites. So they asked the kings of these two nations for permission. Moses, led by the Holy Spirit, told the kings that his people would not stray from the main highway, nor touch any crops. He even offered to pay for any water that Israel's cattle consumed in transit. He thus carefully observed the Edomites and Amorites' boundaries as being ordained of God and worthy of all respect. Let us now, remembering that Biblical context, consider the situation of large numbers of migrants gathering around the port of Calais. Scripture plainly teaches the obligation before God to uphold the law of the land. Peter states, for example, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him, sent by the Lord. And we read in Deuteronomy 19 and verse 14, Thou shalt not remove thy neighbour's landmark. So it cannot be righteous behaviour for migrants to cut wire fences along railway tracks. Christians should not condone such behaviour because those fences effectively represent a national border. Nor can it be appropriate conduct to storm the approaches of the Channel Tunnel or to stow away in vehicles against the wishes of the driver. The intention day after day to deliberately break the law by gaining access to restricted areas along a busy railway line is a moral issue. Those doing such things are already in a safe country and indeed They have crossed other safe countries to reach Calais. So it cannot be argued that they are fleeing for their lives. Now I know this is highly controversial, but we do have to approach this whole matter in a biblical fashion. And the same can be said about those who are crossing the Mediterranean Sea from Turkey to Greece in overcrowded boats, and then moving onwards to Northern Europe. Now we do not for one moment diminish the reasons why they may still want to leave Turkey. But the reason is not fleeing for their lives because Turkey is a safe country. It also needs to be stated that many of those attempting to get into Europe at the current time are not from Syria. On the European Union's own figures, of the 213,000 people claiming asylum in Europe in April to June of this year, only 44,000 were escaping from the conflict in Syria. As we consider these enormous migrant flows, it is interesting to read what the journalist Menelee Phillips has stated. She writes, The idea that Britain and Europe can accommodate this flood of people is delusional. According to the United Nations, by the end of last year, almost 60 million people had been forcibly displaced from their homes. Britain certainly cannot take them. Public services are already being stretched to breaking point with a record population being further swelled by an unsustainable net immigration of a third of a million people according to the latest figures. Now. That is the end of that quotation. Such facts as these should certainly prompt us to hesitate and to stop and think as a nation and as Christians before simply saying, in respect of the massive movements of peoples which are taking place, yes, we must open our doors. And we must avoid the temptation to try and be more compassionate than the next person. Christians especially must reflect and ask certain questions. Does having fled a war zone actually confer the right to demand automatic entrance into any country of one's choice, no matter how far away? does it confer the right to demand passage through any country one chooses, regardless of the legality of entry? Every time war breaks out anywhere in the world, does that automatically create an obligation upon Britain to take in however many refugees who might wish to settle here? These questions must be seriously considered, and we must not simply respond to knee jerk media emotion. How then do we deal with this current crisis? It is certainly right that Western governments give aid to the nations adjoining Syria, Jordan, Lebanon and Turkey in providing facilities for the refugees. What is really vital is that safe havens are established adjacent to the war zones. This was the proposal of the Turkish Prime Minister Ahmet Davutoglu last October in which he spoke of a humanitarian safe zone under military protection along the Turkish-Syrian border. Uh, And can we suggest that the uh, Turkish Prime Minister will have his finger more on the pulse than perhaps many of us here in Britain. Now on this whole issue, we do appreciate the recent input uh, made by Lord Kerry, with whom on other occasions we have had sadly to strongly disagree. But on this matter, uh, Lord Carey has been very helpful. He has written in the Daily Telegraph, it would be a mistake to give way to bullying calls to immediately open our doors to tens of thousands of refugees. We are a small island and recent immigration figures are highly disturbing. Last year, a net figure of 330,000 people Settled amongst us. Imagine this continuing year after year. The former Archbishop has also expressed anxiety that in Britain's decision to allow in 20,000 Syrian refugees, Christians have in fact been left at the bottom of the heap. Christians are not to be found in the refugee camps from which the 20,000 will be drawn because they have been targeted by Islamists and driven from the refugee camps. Instead, the Christians are seeking refuge in private homes, church buildings and with neighbours and families. There is certainly a strong case, therefore, for Britain to take in designated numbers of Syrian Christians, for they are genuinely desperate and are the specific targets of persecution. As George Carey further remarked, we are a Christian nation with an established church, so Syrian Christians will find no challenge to integration. We consider that this emphasis upon the need for integration with the host culture to be a wise and proper emphasis. Now, it is also appropriate to mention in this whole context of what do we do about this refugee crisis. Is it appropriate to mention this? The wealthy Arab Gulf states should surely also open their doors to their fellow Muslims fleeing the fighting in Syria. This again will make for easier integration of the refugees. But the Gulf states, including Saudi Arabia, are at present not accepting any refugees. Now in the years 1938 to 1939, Uh, Britain rightly took in some 10,000 Jewish children fleeing the Nazis. And this was because the Jews were being specifically targeted by the Nazis for extermination. Likewise, in the ISIS advances, in Iraq and Syria, it is Christians who are particularly at risk. As one Iraqi church leader stated last year, innocent Christian civilians are forced to convert, be treated as dhimmi or slaughtered. Today, Mosul, the second largest city in Iraq, has no Christians in it whatsoever. It is governed by a very strict interpretation now of Sharia law some 200,000 Christians from Mosul and the surrounding towns and villages in the plain of Nineveh have had to take refuge in Kurdistan. What Britain needs to do therefore is to make sure that Kurdistan remains safe and secure. And yes, let us take in a designated number of genuine Christian refugees by arrangement with respected age agencies such as Barnabas Fund. However, simply denuding the region of all its Christians forever is not the ultimate solution. Nor is denuding Syria of most of its population bar the combatants the ultimate solution. And yet this is how so many people are thinking. Who is going to rebuild the country when the civil war finally ceases? Christians must engage in serious thought here. And we have to think outside of what the media presents to us. It is interesting that the head of the Syrian Orthodox Church, Ignatius Afrem II has stated that the best course of action for the West is not a military one but to support local governments which need sufficient armies and forces to maintain security and defend respective populations against attacks. It is also noteworthy that this Syrian Christian leader The man on the ground has not said that the West should take in more refugees. And that is someone who's actually in Syria. Sadly, many in the churches use arguments which are not appropriate in dealing with this matter. Many refer to our Lord's flight into Egypt as an infant as a justification for the unquestioning acceptance of migrants and refugees, even amounting to hundreds of thousands of people. We have to disagree with this approach. Mary and Joseph stayed in Egypt only until the immediate danger was over. They changed countries to save one specifically targeted child. They did not presume upon a right to take up permanent residence in Egypt. Indeed, there is every likelihood that their stay in Egypt was no more than a few weeks. Therefore, this is not remotely a precedent to justify the reception of the enormous migrant flows now coming into Europe from the Middle East and North Africa. Nor can the Bible's passages about treatment of the stranger be used to justify the taking in of enormous numbers of migrants. The point of these biblical injunctions is that the strangers are seen as vulnerable individuals They are often being listed alongside the fatherless and the widows. This in itself proves that these texts are not speaking of mass movements of whole communities numbering hundreds of thousands. Any nation in any age will always find smallish numbers of foreign people in its midst, and such should be afforded respect and equal treatment under the law. But the stranger passages refer to foreigners already in Israel, not to the abandonment of border controls so as to facilitate future migration. Now, regarding the plight of genuine refugees from the war in Syria it is obviously easier for the many who are Muslims to find safe areas within the region amongst their fellow Muslims than it is for Christians to find such areas. It is for this reason that Britain needs to focus on establishing safe havens within the Middle East itself. Specifically for beleaguered Christian people. Now, the Syrian Christians are in danger not only from ISIS but also from a coalition of forces who are fighting both ISIS and the Assad led government. Now, this coalition is supported by the United States, Turkey and Saudi Arabia and is described by the US government as being a moderate grouping. Yet some amongst this anti-Assad moderate grouping are also guilty of persecuting Christian communities. Let us take this on board. Amongst Islamic combatants being supported by the West are those guilty of abusing Syrian Christians. We can see then that the situation in Syria is very complex. And so we also need to ask the very pertinent question. Are there some amongst the Syrian refugees seeking asylum in Europe who would actually harbour very negative attitudes towards Christian people. (coughs) On a broader level, yes, of course, we endeavour to help those in great need. And yes, of course, we love our neighbour, whoever he is and wherever he comes from. This does not mean, however that it is wrong for nations to rigorously control their borders. (coughs) Indeed, we have to say this as Christians. It is righteous behaviour in the sight of God for a nation to control its borders. Furthermore, if nations do not control their borders, they cease to be nations. And if they cease to be nations, that is contrary to God's ordained purpose for this fallen world ever since the time of the Tower of Babel. The primary moral obligation, of course, in the present crisis Rests where? Where does the primary moral obligation rest? It rests with those who are actually conducting the war in Syria. The war in Syria is a Sunni versus Shiite war. The two major divisions within Islam. Have the warring factions asked themselves, whether the mayhem which is being wrought upon the Syrian people is actually worth the cause for which they are fighting. There is so much turmoil and chaos throughout the Middle East (coughs) following in the wake of the Arab Spring which we here in the West very unwisely supported. And this leads us to a consideration of our second major theme as we look at the war and conflict and turmoil in the Middle East we ask the question why is it happening why does God the gracious God allow all this suffering and conflict to take place now once more we must endeavour to apply biblical principles here. How do we resolve all this mayhem in the Middle East in the context of God's providence? Indeed, why is there war anywhere in the world? Briefly, the answer to that question, there is war because there is so much spiritual darkness in the world. War is one of the consequences of man's fallen nature. And God permits war as a chastisement upon nations which defy him. And we single out no particular nation when we say that. (laughs) Scripture clearly teaches that war does happen in the providence of God. And each individual nation has to consider its own situation in the light of that providence. Now we are thinking during 2015 about our own involvement in the Second World War with the 70th anniversary of V.E. Day and the 75th anniversary of the Battle of of Britain. Uh, Just the other day there was a a major service in Westminster Abbey uh, commemorating uh, that battle in the skies. Let us ask a further question. Why did we get sucked into that dreadful conflict that we know as the Second World War? Now we do not understand all the mysteries of God's providence but we certainly know that the spiritual condition of Britain when war broke out in 1939 was very poor indeed. The churches had emptied after the Great War and Bible denying theological liberalism continued in the ensuing decades to eat away at the spiritual health of the nation. Now, one of the notable pastors who stood against this downgrade in our national life, our spiritual life, and who ministered throughout the war years was Dr. Martin Lower Jones, minister of Westminster Chapel in central London. In October 1939... Dr Lloyd-Jones preached a sermon entitled, Why Does God Allow War? And he dealt with the issue of how Britain, over the previous 20 years, had used the victory granted to it in God's providence in 1918. His sermon included these words. Under the blessing of peace... Since the 1914-18 war, men and women in constantly increasing numbers have forsaken God. They have settled down to a life which is essentially materialistic and sinful, pleasure-seeking and accompanied by spiritual and mental indolence. This became evident not only in the decline of religion but still more markedly in the appalling decline in morals. It led to the decadence on which the rulers of Germany banked and on which they based their calculations. Dr Lloyd-Jones continues, The Germans believed that we would not fight because they felt that we had lost our stamina and would allow nothing to interfere with our indolent life. End quote. So we learn there from one skillful in reading the signs of the times that Britain in the 1920s and 30s had become increasingly decadent, immoral, and Christ rejecting. The fascinating point is that Germany, for all its own gross spiritual darkness in this period, nevertheless recognised how decadent and godless Britain had become. And because of this, the Nazis were actually more willing to risk their expansionist activities, believing that Britain had lost the moral backbone to oppose them. Most people, of course, want to live in peace. But if God does grant to a nation peace, what are they going to do with it? Do the people want peace merely so that they can carry on pursuing their sins and with a life which utterly ignores God? Tragically, in the period between 1918 and 1939, this nation did not return to a fear of God, despite having been humbled by the horrors of the Great War. Indeed, the opposite happened. There was a great falling away from the Christian Gospel. The chastisement of the Second World War then came, and God again mercifully granted Britain after a long struggle and at great cost, an ultimate victory and peace. But what are we doing with that peace in the post-war period? We have used it to turn against God. What we must always remember in considering these things is that national well-being and prosperity are functions of a nation's standing With God. This applies to every nation in every age. It applies today to Syria, to Afghanistan, to Libya. It applies to our own land and every other land. We are not being crudely simplistic when we declare that whatever a country's problems might be, The only ultimate solution is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because only the gospel can change human hearts. And only the gospel can drive out false religion. British values and toleration, so-called, cannot drive out false religion. Only the gospel can begin to make a nation righteous. And when we speak of driving out false religion, we do not mean forcibly, physically driving it out. We mean getting people saved by coming to faith in Jesus Christ. It is only righteousness before God that can ever exalt a nation in respect of social stability economic prosperity and the enjoyment of peace. Modern Britain is living on borrowed time. God is incredibly gracious to us. Why have we not descended into the chaos that prevails in Syria? We do not know, but God is gracious. As we consider our national life today we have to get the providence of God back to the top of the agenda. We have to impress upon people that God deals with nations as nations and he also judges nations as nations. And sadly the churches have tended to lose sight of this fact. Just as the social gospel only deals with the symptoms of what is really a spiritual problem and ignores the root cause. So when churches advocate world peace and international cooperation and perhaps the setting aside of national interests for the greater good that is not dealing with the heart of the matter which is that God governs the nations and judges the nations which defy him. Now Christians, whatever their views on membership of the European Union, must not argue like this. We have to stay in because this alliance has kept the peace for the last 50 years. It is not man-made alliances which determine the issue of war and peace. It is the providence of God. If a man-made alliance sets itself against the commandments of God, then ongoing peace can never be guaranteed. This is seen clearly in 2 Chronicles 14, where we read of King Asa's faithfulness to the Lord in his government of Judah. We read in 2 Chronicles 14, verse 4, Asa commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to do the law and the commandment. Also he took away out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the images. And the kingdom was quiet before him. The land had rest and he had no war in those years because the Lord had given him rest. He had no war because the Lord had. Had given him rest. So Asa saw to it that the nation was not given over to false religion. He encouraged the people to return to the fear of the Lord. He made sure that God's moral law was upheld in the land. The consequence of all this was that the Lord rewarded Judah for its national repentance and turning back to him. And God's blessing upon the nation was especially manifested by the absence of any war. Now we are commemorating this year, as we have said, the 70th anniversary of V.E. Day, the Allied victory in Europe in 1945, and our own nation's deliverance from over five and a half years of war. We are also remembering that amazing deliverance from the invader, which was the Battle of Britain. But are we as a nation... Remembering these events in the light of God's providence. We rightly praise the bravery of the pilots. We admire the Spitfires and the hurricanes. But do we as a nation ever refer to the hand of God in the outworking of all these events? Our land today needs to submit once again to the God who determines the affairs. Of the nations. How desperately Syria needs the gospel of Jesus Christ and how desperately Britain needs it also. And we today as Christians must challenge the forces of God rejecting wickedness in our land. We must never shun to use the truth of God's Word in dealing with those who govern us. We must as Christians have the freedom to declare that Jesus Christ is the only way and that other religions are false. It is an act of love to point those of other faiths to the only saviour of man. We must confront the assault upon marriage. We must confront the killing of heart beating life in the womb. We must confront the profaning of the Lord's day contrary To God's holy law. Modern Britain will only know God's blessing if the gospel is fearlessly preached so that sinners are transformed. And so may God enable each one of us to get into the highways and byways and to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified because this, this gospel, is our nation's only hope. Amen.